A lot can happen between falling in love with a house online and owning it. Between imagining living there and breathing in your new home for the first time. Having an advocate who can help you navigate the complex world of financing, inspections, negotiating, analyzing the market, and talking through any anxieties that may pop up, that can make all the difference. That's what the expertise of a Realtor can do for you. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors and bound by a code of ethics. Because that's who we are. Hop, hop, hooray! Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? Episode 97 of the Bowery Boys, Trinity Church. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. Happy New Year, everyone. We are back. Happy New Year to you, Greg. This is our first new show of the year, and I thought that it would be a good idea if we go straight to church for this one. Excellent. We, we haven't actually done a church in a very long time, and New York is home to hundreds of churches, many of them. Thousands. Many of them spectacular examples of architecture. Trinity Church is arguably probably the most important to the history of New York City, not just because of the people who went there, but because of where it happens to be situated in the city. And in actually studying the history of Trinity Church, we're studying the history of the entire city of New York. Throughout many of the situations in New York City history that we've covered in previous episodes, Trinity has always been there. We'll talk about it as a, pl- a gathering place for New York's wealthy, but we'll also talk about it as a very influential and one of the most powerful landowners in New York City. In that respect today, Trinity Church wields a lot of power outside of its church walls. By the way, not only are there very important people who have historically over the years gathered inside, but there are many many who continue to gather outside in its churchyard cemetery. So scoot over, make some room in the pew as we sit down and listen to the history of Trinity Church. Before we start, I have to, I just have to apologize up front. I have a little bit of a cold, so my voice might sound a little strange, and my the cadence of my voice might be a little off. <clears throat> I think so. it gives you more gravitas. Oh, thank you. And perhaps, Greg, that has something to do with the fact that you went to the Lady Gaga concert last <laughs> night. <laughs> And I give you major snaps for them waking up, coming in, and recording a podcast on Trinity Church. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was through the the whole show. I was just thinking about, you know, 19th century, early New York, (laughs) the Astors. Well, why don't, Tom, why don't you situate us here? And because what makes this church, I think, so unique and so recognizable in a lot of people's minds is where it's at, specifically, because it's it's kind of unusually placed. It's a situation. Trinity Church is located at Broadway and Wall Street at that where Wall Street hits Broadway. It's on the west side of Broadway. 
It is an Episcopal church, and today's church is actually the third on that spot. What I find really fascinating about it is with a lot of landmarks in New York, they're sort of placed in a way that you can kind of see what they were like when they were first built, like where you can sort of squint and sort of like imagine it. With this, it's so tucked into this canyon of buildings Mm. and it's tucked up on top of Wall Street, you know, and was created so long before Wall Street became, quote, Wall Street, you know. This structure being 150, more than 150 years old, if you think when it was built, it was actually the tallest building in its area. So the structure is the same, but the surrounding buildings, of course, have changed and its prominence has thus shifted somewhat. I'm actually going to start this story. We're going to wind the clock back. Um, We're actually going to go to the late 17th century and and start around 1696, because that was the year that the first Trinity was first constructed. But I kind of want to set the scene here, because it's true that in in this podcast, we actually haven't spent a lot of time in this particular era of New York, which is the early years of colonial British New York. Although the British took New Amsterdam from the Dutch in 1664, and by 1696 had obviously had it for a few decades, it was still a very volatile place. For instance, in 1673, less than 10 years after New York took it from the Dutch, the, t- the Dutch took New York back from them ah, yes. for a very short time and then agreed to return it back to the British just a short time afterwards. In the 1680s, King James II uh, in England, the, the monarch of the British realm, made New York the official royal colony. But what this did is it essentially ripped up all the provincial constitutions of the various colonies. Because they were so far away from the British crown, they essentially had to sort of operate themselves, even though they were an extension of the Kingdom of England. Mm-hmm. This wasn't exactly greeted uh, warmly by a lot of the colonists. In fact, in 1689, a man by the name of Jacob Lesler, who was angered by the policies of the king, wrested hold of the governorship and basically ruled New York uh, for a couple years. They called it the Lesler Rebellion. So New York was already giving England a headache at this point. Exactly. Even, even as far back as 1689, two years later, Lesler was captured and executed actually in the city by military forces that were sent over by King James's successor, William III. So that was in 1691. The new governor of the colony, his name was Benjamin Fletcher, he obviously wants to establish a firmer hold on the colony. And one of the best ways to do this is to establish a more a firmer religious hold under a Protestant banner. Because up to this point with the Dutch rule and then the English takeover, there were many different religions. There would have been the Dutch Reformed. Yes, as a matter of fact, they, they were a lot more Dutch Reformed than there were Anglicans, which of course represents the Church of England. And they were like, there were Catholics, there was a small number of Jews, and there were also people who didn't practice any religion. I think this probably shocked the English settlers who came over after the Dutch period, because they were seen, as opposed to Boston or Philadelphia, they were seen a colony that was a little less concerned with things religious. And religion was, I mean, let's be honest, it was a good way to unite a kingdom. It wasn't just for us, you know, spiritual turpitude. It was also a way to keep people in control. So this governor, Fletcher, as an extension of the king himself, basically wanted to create a virtual Church of England here in New York as a way to sort of better control the colony. In 1696, a group of Anglicans began building a small church at Broadway and Wall Street. 
in the exact place where the current church is. The next year in 1697, King William granted this small church a royal charter and that this church would actually serve as a branch of the Church of England. In exchange, they would actually give a metaphorical rent to the Church of England, a very ceremonial one peppercorn a year. (laughs) One peppercorn. One one of those black... Well, they make black pepper out yes. of a peppercorn. One peppercorn per year. Yes, they. It, it was sort of. It was just a ceremonial rent. You know, they. They something had to be exchanged for this. Oh, sure. So that you can create an official branch of the Church of England here in New York City. And if, in fact, a lot of other people of other religions helped with the creation of the church. Some of the Dutch Reformed helped with the transportation of supplies. Another person who helped to build the church, Tom, a man by the name of William Kidd, actually donated a lot of supplies. Like he some stone movers. William Kidd. Now, why does Billy the Kid sound familiar? Well, it's not Billy the Kid. It's he would leave New York soon after and would become the famous pirate Captain Kidd. He's one of the most notorious pirates of the Atlantic Ocean, in <laughs> fact. Um, and he, he Captain was, Kidd. And he was rumored to, to be a member of the original congregation of Trinity Church. Now, the spire of this church, even back then, would be the tallest thing in New York City. But as in terms of architecture, the building was very, very plain. It began services on March 13th, 1698. And that is on the same spot as today's church. Correct. The very first rector of the church was a man named William Vesey. Now, ah. you may remember... You as may, in the street. As in the street, which is so funny. It's I know you, you say VC. Mm. Every time I look at the sign, I want to say Vise or Vise. Or, there's like 25 ways wrong to say it, but it's in fact, it's VC. And it's named after the very first rector of Trinity Church. Trinity Church would actually hasten the Anglicanization of New York. I don't know if that's a word, but basically... I'll take it. So it worked. It, um, it, it totally worked. Ab- absolutely. After the Revolutionary War, of course... Anglican, because it was related to the Church of England, became the Episcopalian Church. There were a lot of changing winds around this time. The very next governor of the colony, whose name was Richard Coote, the Earl of Bellamont, well, he had complete opposite views of the prior government. He hated this connection to the Church of England. He actually annulled the lease. This was actually the ne- the year after it, it opened and began services. He annulled the lease. And he was the governor of New York? He was the governor of the New York Colony, yes. Right. And who knows what more. He might have had it like ripped down and the land sold had he not died of gout in 1701. Oh. And then replaced with another governor, Edward Hyde, also the Viscount Cornbury. <laughs> um, the Viscount, who was a lot more amenable to the church and sort of gave them back the land. Well, as we'll see, I mean, the history of Trinity is a history also of of land and of disputes over land as well. I mean, in 1705, actually, Queen Anne of England granted Trinity Church two huge parcels of land, uh, the total 215 acres. For the most part, we're talking about land that was on the west side of Manhattan that stretches from today's Fulton Street up to Christopher Street. These areas were called the Queen's Farm and became known as the Church Farm, mm-hmm. which just cracks me up for some reason. I don't know, the, ch- the, church, <laughs> the church Farm. farm. But, you know, it's funny. We can see it today on a map. You can identify this section of land because if you can imagine now the Fulton Street up to, say, Christopher on the west side of Manhattan, west of Broadway, 
entering that area from the east, so like from the Broadway side, there was marshland along there. Mm-hmm. So the city or the church planners, when they were actually laying out streets, made the entrance to this section over on the Hudson side. And so they made the streets perpendicular to the Hudson. So you can see when you look down at a map of Manhattan, these there's kind of a shift west of no, it's kind Broadway, of fascinating. And you yeah. see those the the streets lined up there. That was all the Queen's farm or the church farm and it's it is kind of amazing looking at a map and you can you can almost it's like a virtual outline almost still today right just because of the streets running at a different angle than the rest of them right it's the east west streets that are kind of going down into the hudson of course you know today the island down there has been enlarged quite a bit from landfill so this parcel didn't go over west as far as it does today well obviously this large grant of land came in very handy to trinity i mean just it was very valuable property. Trinity started to offer its own land grants to other churches, to other organizations. For example, Columbia or King's College mm-hmm. at the time, which set up its first campus on Trinity land that was what well, even gave some first classes inside the church itself. For more information, listen to our Columbia University podcast, which we did just a few months ago. Exactly. Today, interestingly, Greg, Trinity owns 15 acres of the original 215 acres, so only about 8% of that original tract of land. Don't feel sorry, of course, for Trinity, (laughs) because today it owns a lot of other land as well, and a lot of other buildings Mm -hmm. that have been given to the church. And it made a lot of money on on selling the land that it did have. Exactly. This land has made Trinity one of the city's largest landowners still today, and really one of the world's richest churches because it owns so much of the world's most valuable land. And later in the 19th century, they would only be rivaled by John Jacob Astor as the biggest landowner and the biggest landlord in Manhattan. And I believe Astor himself was a member of the church. Mm -hmm. Now in 1709, to rewind because we just got a little carried away, (laughs) in 1709... Trinity founded the Charity School, now it's known as Trinity School, and classes were actually held in the steeple of the church. It is the oldest educational institution in continuous operation in New York City. A couple decades later, in 1750, a major fire actually started in this Charity School, and it spread over to the church and damaged the steeple. The church was repaired and the school was reopened, but this was just one of the first fires that would affect Trinity Church. This is a common theme in a lot of our stories that we tell. Things burn down a lot. Especially in the middle of the 1700s. Now, during the revolution, of course, um, which is just a couple decades later, we have a very interesting dynamic happening in New York City. And again, we've done a podcast on New York during the revolution and British occupied New York, which is a two-parter and fascinating to listen to. (laughs) Imagine that, you know, following the Patriot defeats around New York, the British made New York City their base for Mm -hmm. army and war planning, and the British generals were all here. In 1776. In 1776. The leadership, thus, of Trinity Church was made up of loyalists, Necessarily. Mm -hmm. I mean, this was an Anglican church, (laughs) Uh ties to the crown, appointed by the crown, really. Now, on September 21st of 1776, 
four days after the Battle of Harlem Heights. So, so literally not even a week since George Washington and the Continental Army were basically scooted out of New York. Right. The Fighting Cock's Tavern, a, a wooden tavern, caught fire on a wharf down near Whitehall Slip, and the winds were carrying the flames northward. The exact origin of the fire is still unknown. We don't know if somebody lit it, if it was a patriot who was trying to burn down this British bastion. Lower Manhattan caught fire was engulfed in flames, and everyone, you can imagine the, the aristocrats, the soldiers, others scrambling around in the middle of the night trying to put out these fires, trying to, trying to stop the spread. Trinity Church uh, and Charity School were both engulfed and destroyed. St. Paul's Chapel and King's College were saved, interestingly, by bucket brigades mm-hmm. of people who were able to stop the fire, but not so Trinity. I should mention that St. Paul's Chapel, was, which is right up the street uh, from Trinity, right. and is still there and is still a wonderful place and also deserves its own podcast later, it shall get um, was, a, was also an Episcopal chapel. And as you said, it's, it survived the fire even as Trinity was completely destroyed. And in fact, what's interesting is the ruins to Trinity Church would be standing for years because every, everything was so chaotic and no one was developing new buildings. So basically, this sort of charred husk of a building sat there for years. Which is eerie, spooky, And it should be remembered that a quarter of the city was actually turned to ruins. Mm -hmm. So Lower Manhattan was just a wasteland. And as you say, for years, ruins set. People walked by ruins. But of course... The British lost the war, Greg. Yes, they did. They and so, of course, in 1783, they left town. I mean, the the soldiers left town, but of course, there were there were still loyalists. I mean, they all eventually left, of course. But you even had these very weird situations over at St. Paul, because that's where the Trinity Congregation would now meet. The rector, the loyalist Charles Inglis, would be there, and he would be reading the royal prayers from the Church of England, even as sitting right in front of him was one parishioner. George Washington, who I'm sure was giving him some sort of sour looks. Mm. Might have been his wooden teeth, but it was some sour looks. Um, I don't think he had the wooden teeth yet. I'm sorry. Of Most of the people who were loyal to the crown, of course, then left New Skipped York. town, went to Canada. Now, there were some fears because, of course, Trinity Church was so associated with loyalists and the Church of England that they would never be rebuilt and that the land would be confiscated. Which surely happened to other churches. Oh, yeah, and many other buildings because they were had that association. Believe or not, this was actually saved by one of the parishioners, a man named Alexander Hamilton, uh, um, who helped save, who actually helped save it. And, and, and who attended King's College on Trinity land. Exactly. So a new building would then be built here on the land, a second church in 1790. Yeah, so we've dropped Hamilton's name, we've dropped Washington's name. Um, you know, up, other people like John Jay would be a vestry at Trinity Church. Interestingly enough, of course, many of these people who would go there would be buried here. And that's why... Alexander Hamilton is buried in the churchyard, as is Robert Fulton, who died in 1815. They were, they were both buried here. So the new, the second Trinity Church was built in 1790, was a magnet, of course, for the wealthiest families in New York. This would be a theme that would run, through, was, was going to run straight through the 19th century. As the city begins to move north, um, this will happen in, in a more dramatic way, as it begins to move north, a carriage stand would be opened right 
in front of the church because now people used to be able to walk to church. Now they can ride their carriages and they can right. be dropped off in front of it. The real story here in the post-war years was, the, as of course, the growth of the city. And as a landlord, the land that they own suddenly becomes a lot more valuable than it used to be. They're not growing potatoes on the Queen's farm anymore. Uh, not at all. They're going tenements and townhouses, let's just say. In the years between 1783 and 1812, the land values all through New York increase 750% on average. Mm. The earliest houses that would be built on this land would be for the working class. But then in 1806, when Trinity required that its tenants to to build brick structures because they were, of course, better in fires, poor people couldn't afford to build these brick houses. So they moved out and then the wealthier moved in. One area, in in fact, was called St. John's Park. There was a specific development that Trinity worked on. This is actually in the area around Holland Tunnel today. They built another chapel there, St. John, and developed it for wealthy people. It seems to me that the church is really ahead of its time getting into real estate development, not just holding on to land, but development. Savvy, a little cynical, but it's true. One thing that that the church was maybe not so great at was serving as black parishioners. In 1809, they eventually splintered off and they created their own chapel called the St. Philip's Church, which the congregation also is still active today. In fact, by the 1850s, the congregation of St. Philip's Church would actually be one of the biggest in the entire city. Now, in the winter of 1838, it was a bad winter. New York sometimes has these very bad winters, and this was one of them. There was a, a lot of snowfall that year. It really weakened the roof of this this second version of Trinity Church. So what they thought that they were going to do in the spring of 1839, they're like, well, you know, we're just going to rip the roof off and we'll build a new roof. Sure, sounds straightforward. They took the roof off, and then they realized, oh, the entire building is compromised. Like, everything was rotted through. So they were like, well, you know what? We have to build an entirely new church. And thank God for that, because that's the current building. The third one is the current building that we presently have. The new Trinity Church would be consecrated in 1846. So once again, we go seven years without a church in that spot. Now, before we get into the actual structure, imagine the, the day that it was consecrated in 1846. Ascension Day. The church steeple, crowned with a cross, topped this new Gothic structure that was the tallest structure in Lower Manhattan. It was visible from the ships arriving in New York Harbor. Its spire was the tallest point in the city, reaching up 281 feet. And would be the tallest for decades. Until 1890, yes. As the tallest building in New York, it would become a symbol for the city of New York. Today, we think of the Statue of Liberty or the Empire State Building. At the time, New York was Trinity Church. It was represented by the spire. The architect of this neo-Gothic masterpiece is a man named Richard Upjohn. Uh, He was an English-born builder who emigrated to the U.S. in 1829 and settled in Boston. He was actually a master mechanic, Greg, but he studied Mm. architecture. Mm -hmm. And in 1839, he moved to New York to help work on problems and projects at Trinity Church. So he moved here when they were sort of trying to figure out how to fix the roof and around, you know, other projects related to that. When they decided to rip it down... They said, you know what, stop all of these side projects you have. Stop <laughs> stop working on these little projects. We're giving you a much bigger one. We'd like you, please, 
to design an entirely new church for mm-hmm. us. And that he did in spades. And the, what's amazing, I mean, this is literally one of the greatest examples of Gothic architecture right. in the Gothic United States. Revival. Gothic Revival. I'm sorry, Gothic Revival yes. architecture because in the United States. Because, of course, States. Gothic architecture from, was from a different era, right. hundreds and hundreds of years previous. Sure. But he was taking those elements, those arched windows, those high church, flashy Gothic spires and arches, these these elements from Gothic architecture and putting them into the new buildings. At the time, people were, well, let's say that many Protestants were favoring the low church style. That was to say simple, straightforward architecture, sure. not flashy. Instead, he came with the high church, which was definitely flashy using these medieval elements. Interestingly, he didn't use one of the most recognizable elements of Gothic architecture, the flying buttress. If you think about, say, Notre Dame in Paris, you have these enormous Mm -hmm. flying buttresses that were included as well to help with the structure itself. Well, now there had been architectural improvements that didn't require the need for these. Trinity doesn't have them. Instead, he uses vertical lines from the outside. If you imagine the verticality of it, it shoots straight up in the air and carries your eyes up all the way up the steeple to the cross at the top. If you live here in New York, or if you, when you plan your next visit, make sure that you do stop by Trinity Church, tour the cemetery that surrounds it, and take a tour of the interior as well. You'll be amazed at the various elements that he used, the stained glass, the innovative use of stained glass. For example, the giant arched windows that are behind the altar. They're very elaborate, very Gothic. The altar itself, another pointed arched affair, Uh, filled with sculptures. The doors, the bronze doors, came a little bit later in 1893, uh, designed by Richard Morris Hunt. They were sort of homage to the uh, great doors at the Duomo in Florence and were a special Astor family gift uh, in memory of John Jacob Astor. And all these flourishes, of course, is giving Trinity Church, let's just say it's giving them some serious credential here. Definitely. So you have this amazing, beautiful building. Uh, and of course, we still have the graveyard here. Hamilton and Fulton, which I mentioned. Um, John Jacob Astor would eventually be buried here. Oh, the printer, William Bradford. Also, the, a name, John Peter Zenger. Does that sound familiar to you? Zenger, yes. Um, uh, Zenger? Zenger. He was a newspaper man in the early, the British colony of New York. Right, and, and with the freedom of the press. Yes, he's a sort of a pivotal figure in, in media and in the freedom of the press. His, he's actually buried here, but his grave is unmarked, so he's just buried in the land, but no one really knows where. Eventually, they actually needed, the land was all taken up by people who died, so they need to have a new, they need to get a new burial ground for some of their parishioners. So in 1842, which is actually four years before the new Trinity is built, um, in 1842, they buy some land well outside of the city. It was at 155th and Riverside today. It, that's how far out of the city it was. It would be consecrated, and they would have their first burial there in 1843. Now, how outside of town is that? It's so outside of town that its next-door neighbor happens to be the estate of John James Audubon. Ah. That name sounds familiar. He was a naturalist and painter and famous for his bird paintings. He lived Talk out about in, a church farm. He lived out in nature, for, specifically for... Her, for. Well, so it must have been a beautiful cemetery. Yes, exactly. And naturally, when he died in 1851, well, they just buried him right next door at the Trinity, at the, at the Trinity Graveyard. Um, throughout the years, at, at this particular place, many many greats would be buried here. Many congressmen, many many asters, many skirmer horns. In fact.
fact, the Mrs. Astor, Carolyn Skirmerhorn Astor, is buried here, as is famed widow and wife of Aaron Burr, Eliza Jamel. Infamous mayors, Fernanda Wood and Aoki Hall, are buried here, as is Clement Clark Moore. Does that name sound familiar? He was the owner of the Chelsea Estate and the writer of oh, Twas yes. the Night Before Christmas. They're all buried here. So it's a... It's a, a, it's a who's who. Yeah, it's, like, it's, a, it's a social register of dead people. It's true. And it's still in operation, isn't it? It's, it's still yes, taking it's, it, yeah, it's, new tenants? It's still taking new tenants. It certainly is. Of course, Trinity does well during the Gilded Age. One encouraged this notion of wealthy upper-class people to come here is this whole notion that pews at the church are actually bought or mm-hmm. subscribed to, which is sort of a wacky idea today. You would even have a whole pew that would be like a family rental that would just be passed down through generations. And, and so it would be reserved for you. Your name would actually be on a plaque. Yes. And I guess if none of your family sh- didn't sh- you know, didn't want to care to go to church that Sunday, it would just sit there empty. Um, and you couldn't even trade it off without the permission of the church vestry, as a matter of fact. I mean, it was a very lucrative business. You know, you as a family member could s- could sell it off if you had the permission and make quite a profit. These pews would go for hundreds, even thousands of dollars. So you had the upper crust sitting here in Trinity, in their bought pews. I read a lot of funny things by the diarist George Templeton Strong, who was actually a vestryman here, and a lot of his diaries, he would be whining about the organ music, about the quality of the music that would be playing on certain certain days. Eventually, a lot of the, the congregation would splinter off. As, as we know, in the 1850s and 60s, a lot of the wealthy would live around Union Square, and that would be sort of the center of hobnobbing in New York City. So in 1846, Grace Church, moved up there and formed there, and that would be... At Broadway and 10th. At Broadway and 10th, and that would be a a centerpiece for a lot of New York's wealthiest to go to. And you say that was 1846, which is the same year that Trinity reopened. Correct. Trinity would, of course, open their own chapel on West 25th Street in 1850 to take care of some of this overflow of rich people who wanted to sit and hear the word of God. And also non-rich people. Yes, of course. Now, in 1853, this is... It's, it wasn't associated with the church, but Upjohn also designed a building called the Trinity Building at 111 Broadway, which is actually next door. It was a five-story building and is actually New York's very first office building. It wasn't owned by the church, but it was called Trinity to sort of like because it sat right next to it. Every room had a little fireplace, but as opposed to these sort of counting houses, this was literally a place where you could rent a space out and you could have a business inside of this. So this was the very first office building in New York. Um, in fact, in 1869, they would, it would be one of the first buildings to have an elevator. So where had offices been before that? They would have their own buildings? They would, or... have, they would have their own buildings, or you know, they might have... I guess um, the concept of a small business was different then. Was you, extremely you had a store, different, you had... sure. So in, in 1860, that St. John Park that I had mentioned earlier, um, the church sold it off to Cornelius Vanderbilt, and it became an act- a train terminal. And of course, by that time, all the rich people clearly moved out. Right. But the church became very more socially aware around this time. In 1879, they built a mission house, which was sort of a, a place of general benevolence. It had anywhere from like a home for old women to live in the dusk of their lives. Uh, it had a girls' school there, and it would work with new immigrants and getting them acclimated. In many cases, many of these immigrants would be living in tenements on land that was owned by Trinity. So 1890, I just have to say, because this is a very symbolic thing that happens. Trinity has been, of course, the tallest building in New York City up until this time. In 1890, a building goes 
past it, it becomes the tallest building in New York, the New York World Tower. So it was this whole trade-off of religion being usurped by commerce by this time. Mm-hmm. Well, you'll be happy to hear that in 1919, Trinity actually abolished its practice of charging oh, for the pews. Well, thank goodness. Nasty practice. A couple years later, in 1922, they pioneered church radio broadcasting in with their Christmas Eve broadcasts. Two years later, in 1924, they would start a delightful tradition of the afternoon concerts. Uh, It seems that in 1924, there was a new organ installed, and Dr. Channing Lefebvre was the organist at the time Uh for for quite a while. He began offering recitals at noon for people who worked in the area, because, of course, in the 1920s, it was a very busy area Mm -hmm. right there at Broadway and Wall Street. So office workers could come over their lunch breaks and listen, and the church could serve as a daytime place of respite for office workers, uh, for anybody really of any religion to come and find some peace and calm, which it still still does today, of course. And they still have afternoon concerts and all sorts of uh, activities there during the day. Check out their website for concert listings. Now, in 1976, jumping forward Mm -hmm. a bit, when Queen Elizabeth II visited New York City, she visited Trinity Church on July 9th. This was during the bicentennial celebrations. Mm -hmm. She was actually presented when she visited Trinity with symbolic back rent, quote unquote, of 279 (laughs) peppercorns. I love this image of like somebody handing the queen a handful of peppercorns. <laughs> she allegedly Here. took the peppers and sneezed. <laughs> There's actually, I believe that there is a, a plaque in, embedded on the floor, right, of the place where she stood at, here at Trinity Church. Now, back to that church farm and the land that it received, Mm -hmm. the real estate really flourished for Trinity during the 20th century and still does today. During the Depression, uh, Trinity converted spaces from the old church farm to industrial development. Uh, especially for printers who wanted to be closer down mm-hmm. to their uh, to their clients in the financial district. And for that reason, you know that over in the west side, over by the Holland Tunnel, that area was a printing district oh, yeah, the, for a very long time. The, that was Trinity property. Right, the Hudson Square Printing District. Now, in 1983, Trinity started converting a lot of those old spaces into premium office spaces. In this area that today we call Hudson Square, mm-hmm. Trinity Real Estate now runs more than 6 million square feet of office space in 18 buildings in this area, all run by Trinity. <laughs> in 1996, Trinity celebrated its 300th birthday on Ascension Day. Notably, of course, on September 11th, 2001, Trinity served as a place of refuge from office workers, people, the pedestrians who needed to get away from uh, flying debris and smokes and clouds as the Twin Towers collapsed. People also, of course, took refuge in St. Paul's Chapel, mm-hmm. straight up. Uh, which was even up the closer street, to the which site. Was right. right next to it. And at St. Paul's, uh, debris knocked over a giant sycamore tree mm-hmm. uh, that had been growing in St. Paul's churchyard for, for nearly 100 years. Steve Tobin, a sculptor, used the roots of that tree to make a bronze sculpture Mm -hmm. that is now on display next to Trinity. So when you visit Trinity, check out 
check out that piece of sculpture. And yeah, and it's and just we should add that Trinity is it's open for even though it's of course a functioning church still, right. it's also open for people to walk in and meander through the churchyard at, at, at certain visiting hours. And of course, inside the church, um, you are allowed to walk around and just look at the architecture close up and take some photographs or take a seat and enjoy the peace and quiet that this church still offers. So we hope you've enjoyed our little trip to church today. I'll have several pictures of the old days, the early days of Trinity Church at our blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com. We'd also like to extend an invitation, if you have not already taken us up on the offer, to join our Facebook page. We we have a lot of discussions on there of both of the blog posts and of the podcasts. Um, a lot of vigorous discussions, in fact. So I urge you all to check it out. And heck, if you'd like to write a review of our podcast, you can do that on iTunes. It helps spread the word. Thank you for very much for listening. We'll see you soon. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon.